1: My guest today is Garrett Ryan from Told in Stone. He also has a book, A Time Traveler's Guide to Ancient Rome, um, and I'm I'm well, before we start, I want to ask what what does he do about on your channel, and what made you start the channel in the first place?
0: Oh yeah, well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, so I started Told in Stone a couple of years ago uh, to promote uh, the website toldstone.com, which is a public history project meant um, to help people learn more about ancient Greece and Rome. And then I decided to write this book, um, Naked Statues, Fat Gladiators, and War Elephants. And I kind of uh, treated the channel as a way of promoting the book at first, and I kind of grew beyond that into an independent platform for exploring the ancient world. Um, I do a bunch of things on that channel. I explore uh, ancient ruins. Um, I talk about uh, frequently asked questions about the Greeks and Romans, um, kind of frequent myths or commonly held myths about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and just generally try to approach uh, the Greeks Romans from new angles.
1: And what is a recent book about which you also had? Uh, you yes, also have a few books, and one of your most recent one, Time Travels Guide, I believe it's called, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Oh, yeah, that, that was a video series I did. I mean, it was a, a time traveler's guide to ancient Rome. Um, and so I did a couple different uh, episodes in this, like, you know, what you would do if you want to get a seat in the Colosseum, for example. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, how to, uh, how to watch a race in the Circus Maximus or uh, bad neighborhoods in ancient Rome. And it's kind of a fun way to approach, um, you know, the actual complexity of living in ancient Rome, you know, this colossal yeah. city, um, which feels very modern in a lot of ways. And I think people kind of responded to that approach to the ancient mm-hmm. world. Um, I, I might do a book someday. Um, oh, oh
1: yeah, the, sorry, my mistake. Uh, yeah, no yeah, worries. T- 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 today we're going to talk about gladiators. Um, uh-huh. It's probably one of the most mysterious. I would use for lack of a better word in mm-hmm. ancient history, because most people probably just see the gladiators and they think that's how this works, but it's far beyond that. And um, what I want to ask you, like I said, what is the biggest misconception um, how did we get so mis- misled about the gladiators and the way they actually mm-hmm. were?
0: Right. Well, I guess, you know, our, our image of the gladiators, of course, is shaped so much by Hollywood. Um, and by the movie gladiator itself of course um but other movies it's kind of it, it defines our image of ancient rome in a lot of ways you know kind of this idea of this blood-soaked entertainment you know with uh, the baying populace watching and cheering as men slash themselves sort of the death yeah um and this of course is kind of um, a sensationalized image of what actually was it, it was a very very bloody business but we should probably think of more almost like a, a boxing um or a mixed martial arts you know, it was more about the artistry of the fight and about the sheer slaughter. You know, there was slaughter. We'll talk about that a little later, I'm right. sure. You know, a lot of slaughter. Um, and it was a hideously brutal business. Um, but when it came down to it, what the Romans appreciated about the gladiators was the bravery they showed in the arena um, and the skill of their fighting. And so we should think of it more as an actual, I think, a sporting event. Um, you know, one with all kinds of moral issues, of course. Um, but what the Romans thought of in a way we think of, um, you know, uh, say, MMA or boxing or any kind of other blood sport.
1: Is boxing and MMA kind of modern-day gladiator fights, in a sense?
0: Yeah, I think they're the most comparable things, certainly. Um, you know, obviously, very rarely does anyone die, you know, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but it's the same approach. You know, the idea that it's not just two guys pummeling... Rocketry. <clears throat> Yeah, right. Um, you know, it, yeah, you right? Now, um, You know, it happens, of course. Um, you know, they're just beating the hell out of each other. But yeah. ideally, it's about them showing that they're skilled. That you know, they have this. They know how to duck and dodge. How to place their their punches. Um, you know, it's the sweet science. Is kind of yeah. the, the
1: old name for boxing. And how did one become a gladiator in the first place? What What did you have to do to become a gladiator?
0: Uh, be very unlucky basically. Um, So you, either you were captured in war, you know, you were like Spartacus famously, uh, a Thracian who was captured and, you know, made to fight, you know, in the arena Um, or you're a condemned criminal. You know, you're a thief. You're not condemned to death immediately, but you're condemned to the arena Um, either because the judge knows someone is trying to throw a gladiator game, or he just wants to, you know, give you a kind of second chance. Or in a few cases um, you're a slave um, who either has committed some fault against his master has been violent and is sold into the arena by his master. Um, and even more rarely, you're a free man who has voluntarily gone to the arena um, from extreme poverty, usually. You know, it seems like the only way out of your debts. And so you sell yourself, basically, into the gladi- gladiator school and renounce your freedom, in effect. Um, so a couple ways into it, but most gladiators are slaves, um, and all are under the absolute authority of the master of their school.
1: What's the case like, like in the in the... The gladiator, where you were disarmed from, from Roman art, the Roman army, or was that really a case?
0: Oh yeah, like like in gladiator. Yeah. Um, um, well, we don't—at least I don't know of any cases, but it certainly happens. Like soldiers who were discharged dishonorably, if you showed cowardice, for example, in battle, um, then you were labeled. Um, so you were just you were thrown out of the legions, and you were labeled uh, infamous, disgraced, mm-hmm. which means that you know you you couldn't be trusted, you couldn't. Uh, uh, hold your own end in business transactions and politics. And so men like that who have been discharged dishonorably, who have been cast out from the legions, uh, may have seen the gladiatorial games as a way out, as a way to kind of regain their honor, um, or a way to just, you know, make ends meet. So I'm I'm sure it happened, but I don't know of any exact examples.
1: Mm. There was there wasn't anyone who just wanted I would to be a gladiator when I grow up. There it wasn't in cases like this or did, did that happen to
0: I mean, it, apparently it did. So, you know, for the Romans, that was that was a, you know, the ultimate uh, disgrace for a parent. If your son voluntarily decided to go off, you know, it's like running off to join the circus, say. You know, you run off to become yeah. a gladiator. It was renouncing your position in society. Um, but some did. or At least if we can trust the satirists, like Juvenal, for example, mm. um, you know, who claim that, you know, well-born youths are running off, you know, to the arena to, you know, become these performers. Yeah. So, I mean, there was an allure to the arena. You know, this idea that, you know, they're They're all of Rome is watching and they're performing, you know, their, their manhood and their courage in front of all these people. But, you know, for any Roman with, you know, his, with a good sense, it seemed like a very risky strategy at best. It's something to be avoided if at all possible.
1: Wouldn't it be be a good way to show your, like you said, your manhood, that you're, I'm a man, look at me, I know how to fight, I can beat (laughs) this guy, I'm, I'm the alpha in this case. It wouldn't that get you the way in a sense?
0: I mean, so, you know, the better way to do that, to show your courage would be to like, you know, join the military, for example, that was the accepted way, become a soldier, or if you're an aristocrat, you know, to kind of join the ranks of the junior officers, you know, and perform well there. Um, or even to join the slightly less disgraceful um, uh, chariot scene, become a driver in the Circus Maximus, for example. And most of them are also slaves or men of low repute, but they're not disgraced like gladiators.
1: Why wasn't, why was, what was the difference there between the Circus Maximus and gladiators?
0: Well, I guess that the idea that the gladiators were, that they sold themselves um, into the mastery of their master, of this school. They sold themselves into slavery, basically. You know, that kind of self-abnegation, um, you know, kind of making yourself disgraced in the Roman eyes, um, was a whole different thing. You know, if, if you were uh, a driver in the Circus Maximus, you were part of these things, uh, the factions, as you were also under the authority of you know, the guy who ran the faction. But you didn't sell yourself, you know, you, you didn't give anyone the right, <clears throat> excuse me, um, to punish you corporally, for example, you know, to beat you, you know, to do whatever they wanted to you. And that's what you did if you made yourself a gladiator. So for the Romans, it felt like kind of surrendering your identity as a Roman, um, as a free man, if you were free, when you began the U.S. your year, when you sold yourself into the gladiator school, um, uh-huh. and then kind of
1: renouncing yourself uh, to become a gladiator in this way. Was it a good life to be a gladiator, better than, better than slavery, or was it...
0: Uh, well, I mean, you know, obviously slavery in the Roman world, there's a huge range yeah. of, of outcomes. You know, if you're working in the mines, for example, you know, where you're you're breathing dust all day, you're in yeah. a chain of darkness, you know, that's a, a hideous life. And, you know, for maybe it could be a gladiator is better than that. But for most Roman slaves, you know, if you're working on an estate, for example, or in one of the elite houses, at least you, you have a good chance of living to old age, or at least as old as mm-hmm. the Romans got. You know, if you're in the gladiatorial school, there's an excellent chance that you're going to die in the arena. Um, Everyone knows that. So, you know, there is this chance, you know, to achieve freedom and glory um, through, you know, your service in the arena. There's also the much better chance you end up dying, you know, on the sand of the Colosseum.
1: What was if you were, We talked about being a free man wanting to be a gladiator, that it was shameful. But if you were a slave, was that what you wanted to do? But did you want to be a gladiator if you were a slave? Mm-hmm. Like you said, you had no other options, really, when you were a slave. But if you could, would that be a good thing, in, in a sense?
0: I mean, it, it could have been. Obviously, you know, so some slaves, you know, if you were, let's say you had an abusive master or something, you were afraid of, you know, being, you know, killed or crippled before you could have a chance to win your own freedom. Then maybe that was the way out, um, and you know there may have been masters who convinced, or sorry, slaves who convinced their masters to sell them into the sell, sell them into the arena. Um, it was probably rare uh, because every slave, at least those in Rome and the big houses there, you know, hoped to gain freedom on their own terms by buying their freedom or getting it in the master's will. You know, there are other ways out of slavery, at least for some, you know, for the, the more elite slaves. Um, but yeah, there may have been some who saw slavery, or sorry, who saw service in the arena um, as a means of escape. You know, we don't have any. At least I don't know of any specific examples, but it's likely it happened because it was a way out um,
1: if you were lucky and good. Mm. Um, before closing, what was the training like for typical gladiator? What was mm-hmm. how did the what was gladiators' school like? How did they treat you there?
0: Uh, it was very rigorous, as you'd expect. Um, so when you first come into the school, you know you're a tiro, you're a new, newcomer, a noob, a noob basically. Uh, and the idea is that, um, you know, you're going to have to prove yourself to the master of the school, the Lannister um, and show your, your prowess as a gladiator. So they start you off um, against uh, literally just a big wooden stake, um, Apollos. And you kind of demonstrate your, you work with an extra heavy training sword. It's twice the weight of a normal sword. And you kind of hack away at this stake, kind of doing basic sword maneuvers, um, you know, basic sword play. And your form there and kind of your, your body type, whether you're, you know, a heavy person, a light person, you're fast, you're slow, that determines um, the kind of fighting school, the fighting style you're assigned to. You know, every player is assigned to a certain fighting type, you know, whether it's like, you know, the, the net man, the retiarius, the secutor, the pursuer. Um, and the master of the school will decide which fighting type you're best suited for. You know, there are some gladiators who are good at several types, you know, who are expert in different fighting styles, but most choose just one early on, or they're assigned to one. Um, and from that point onward, once you're assigned to a certain armor and a certain fighting type, um, you train the moves, um, you know, the, the set defensive and offensive maneuvers um, of being, say, you know, a secutor or a retiarius or whatever, um, you know, for the entire day, basically. Um, and all of their weapons are extra heavy, so that they're meant to build up a lot of muscle, you know, to be very powerful men. Um, and they're fed very well. They're not very, uh, actually, I, I had a video about this a couple couple weeks ago. Um, they're, they're given um, kind of this gruel made out of barley um, and mashed up beans. Yeah. It doesn't taste very good, um, but it's nutritious and it's cheap. And they're given huge amounts of it. Um, and this kind of keeps them well fed, um, keeps them going. because so they're burning off huge amounts of calories every day. Um, they eventually graduate to doing sparring matches against often retired gladiators or expert gladiators in the same school. Um, and after a few months, they're probably ready for their first match in the
1: arena. And what, so I was I was actually speaking a few years ago now with a friend of mine. We talked about this subject, Gladiator. And he said that they were more fat than actually ripped like Russell Crowe and the mm-hmm. other guys in the, glidi- in the gladi- in Gladiator. In It was not the case that they were more fat and not really ripped mm-hmm. as we see in the movies.
0: Well, they probably weren't toned like modern athletes are. You know, that's just really a, a, a modern thing in general. Yeah. But they probably weren't fat either. At least most of them probably weren't. Because you know, they were being fed a fattening diet. And this is something that, um, so about 15 years ago, um, the, the Austrians digging at Ephesus dug up a gladiator cemetery um, and found from analysis of the bones that they had had almost a totally vegetarian diet made up of this gruel again, this kind of barley and bean gruel. And they pointed out the the forensic anthropologists that this would have made the men fat. They would have tended to gain weight under this diet. Um, but what they didn't mention um, is that these guys are also working out every day, all day. So they're also burning off huge amounts of calories all the yeah. time. And if you're running a gladiator school, you don't want guys who are sluggish in any way. So you know they probably aren't you know toned. They probably aren't like you know ripped to the gills, you know veins bulging out everywhere. But it's probably rare to find one who's actually really out of shape. Um, you know, we see on mosaics, for example, gladiators some, at least what their idealized image of a gladiator is. And they're almost always, you know, very muscular. And, and actually, even ancient sources will emphasize um, how over gladiators are. They don't really call them fat ever. So I, I think it's kind of in between, you know, that they, they weren't necessarily, you know, without an ounce of fat on them, but they were probably almost all in quite good shape, you know, able to do a lot of aerobic exercise.
1: And there is, of course, so much more arenas than just Colosseum, and mm-hmm. we don't talk about Rome before, and gladiators before Colosseum in a bit. But they they travel like tours around ancient Rome, like to let's say Carthage to mm-hmm. in to where there is an amphitheater in Pompeii, and they travel on tours to find several battles, or they just station mm-hmm. one place.
0: Yes, yeah, so there were uh, traveling troops of gladiators. Um, often they were kind of the lower end gladiators, and they would do kind of like um, almost like mock fights in, in like little towns, little yeah. market towns. You know, bigger cities like Rome had their own troops of gladiators who probably stayed mostly in and around Rome uh, because there was enough demand to keep them busy. You know, you know, there wasn't a ton of games every year, probably only about a dozen times, you know, a dozen days a year of gladiatorial games in Rome, at least the big ones. Um but that was enough to keep Rome's schools occupied. So there probably was a st- in every big city, you know, kind of their gladiators. And then in smaller places, you know, kind of, um, you know, the, the main regional capital would have a school that might give exhibitions in the smaller towns around. And alongside them, kind of these kind of low end um, traveling troops of gladiators do these mock fights in little towns. So some do travel, certainly. But the ones in Rome, you know, in the center of the empire
1: probably stay in and around the capital. What about in the smaller cities like Pompeii and Carthage? That where mm-hmm. it wasn't as big arenas as I imagine, That just minor. And I was watching a documentary a few a months ago, I think, where they said that, this that there might there might have been an Gladiator Arena in ancient Ro- in Pompeii where mm-hmm. that this was barracks and not what it, I don't, don't remember the original intention, but it might actually have been barracks, uh, but. Did they travel around or did they stay in one place as well?
0: Yeah, well, that's a good example. You know, we have, of course, the arena at Pompeii, the amphitheater, which had a, quite a few seats for the size of the, the town. You know, it was a large amphitheater, almost 20,000 people. Um, and there, there was, beside, you know, not far from it, actually right by the theater, kind of on the other side of town, um, there was appeared to be a permanent gladiator barracks there. Um, you know, you know they found a bunch of gladiator dress equipment, kind of the, form, the armor they would wear in the procession before the games. Um, and also other equipment. Uh, actually, I happened to be in Naples a few weeks ago, and I saw they had on display uh, in the Naples Museum there. They had all all the stuff from Pompeii. It was yeah. a lot of fun to see that in person. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the Pompeii gladiators, there probably was a troop based there, it would seem. You know, there weren't a ton of shows. We we have um, advertisements for the shows in Pompeii, you know, pasted up on the walls. Yeah. Or, uh, or they're frescoed on the walls. You know, like there there will be shades, you know. Um, but, and there probably were gladiators coming in from out of town. So they they mentioned by name gladiators coming in who are famous. Um, but I would guess there was also a stable of local men who were only in Campania, you know, there in Pompeii, maybe Herculaneum, they kind of go around the local area. Um, but were centered in Pompeii, which is big enough to have its own little stable. Um, and then the the letters from Naples and then a few superstars from Rome coming in now and again for the big games. You know, if, if you're running a game, um, you know, if you're the editor of the games, the guy who's paying for the games. It's your responsibility yeah. to contract the gladiators with the masters of the schools. So if you can afford, if you're say, you're a guy in Pompeii, you can afford to bring in superstars from Rome. You'll do that because it'll bring in the crowds and make you look very good in the eyes of the crowd or in the eyes of the people of Pompeii. Um, but probably most guys who are in the provinces don't have that kind of resources. And those go for the
1: cheaper local fighters um, if they can. Was it a good business to run a gladiator school did it take most? Well, wasn't it good enough, valuable enough to... Did you lose economic, economic rise? How, what was it like to run a gladiator mm-hmm. school?
0: Well, you know, from what we know, and there's kind of limited documentation, um, it could be a pretty lucrative, a pretty lucrative business. You can make a lot of money doing this. Um, you know, so gladiators, you know, the, the, the key was you had to hire them out at a good price and not have too many die in the process. Mm. Because if a gladiator died, um, you would you know, the manager of the games had to pay his full price to you. Um, this actually might work out pretty well if you were the, if you were the, uh, the Lannister. Um, sorry, back up a little bit. So if you were the, the Lannister, if you're the manager of gladi- the Gladiator School, um, and you were hiring out gladiators, um, what you do is you kind of rent them out for the games, um, usually for about 10% of their estimated value. So for a top-end fighter, that might be thousands of sesterces, you know, a, a, a working man's annual wage just for one, for one single day's fighting. Um, mm-hmm. If I rent out, let's say, an average of maybe 20 gladiators at a time, um, and so if you keep enough of your fighters alive, um, that could be a pretty good day for you. Um, you know, you don't lose much of your investment um, and you make uh, a pretty good profit by renting them out. But if too many of them die during the games, you have to retrain a whole new crowd of uh, radical who aren't famous and aren't well-known and won't rent for a good price. Um, and so the idea is to keep as many alive as possible once you're trying to clear a house or something um, and to rent them out to, to uh, editors of games, uh, givers of games, who aren't trying to uh,
1: stage a bloodbath or anything. Mm. How, of, how often did Mark, they talked about it, but how much did Mark battles of, like, let's say the Battle of Chania happen, or uh-huh. a, a sort, that sort of thing, sort of uh, battles? How, how often did this happen? Was it, mm-hmm. or was it just one versus one? So uh,
0: for the stars of the arena, it was always 1v1, because people wanted to see the sword play and the, the expertise of the, the great gladiators on display there. Um, but if it was, if you just had a bunch of prisoners of war and wanted to kind of put on a grand display, then you do things like that. You stage a battle. So, right. Like in, in, in Gladiator, right. They have like the battle of Zama or whatever, you know, they stage that. Um, and there are examples like that. So like the Emperor Claudius, for example, who just conquered Britain, um, brought in a whole bunch of British captives, hundreds of them and staged the capture of a British town, um, right there in the arena. So they built a little stockade manned with other prisoners of war and these, um, They had these people were acting like Romans um, trying to attack this stockade, and so you know hundreds died. Um, And it's again, it's a great spectacle for the crowd. But if you're anyone but the emperor, you can't really afford to do things like this. Yeah. So you know Caesar um, stages a grand um, battle at one point that involves elephants, even they have a couple captured war elephants involved. Um, And some emperors do similar things where they have like I think they now Machia a naval battle um, or a full scale land battle um, either in the Circus Maximus or or one of the arenas. Um, with prisoners of war but typically gladiators unless they're the very lowest end gladiators they're called gregari uh, group fighters um are individual fighters because the whole point of their their artistry is to show that they're great one-on-one
1: you know thrusting and parrying um did people take bets on these gladiators like i like, let say I, I think Garrett is gonna win <laughs> this battle and not let's say the other guy Mm-hmm. I, I believe that you were going to I win. Mean, was this allowed, gambling, like we do on football games and today?
0: Well, well, gambling is strongly discouraged in Rome, actually. It's, it's technically illegal, but everyone does it anyway. Um, you know, there's betting all over the place. Um, and there's very strong partisanship, you know, team spirit for these gladiators. Um, there are people who root for a single gladiator, you know, who watch his whole career you know, and cheer for him. People who cheer for types of gladiators. It's like there's the, the light armored types and the heavy armored types. And they're actually clubs, like almost like a modern sporting club, uh, people who cheer for the heavy gladiators or the light gladiators. Um, and so it gets very heated. Um, you know, people, you know, are shouting at the fighters as they're, you know, going along, you know, get yeah. him there, you know, or stay down or whatever else. Um, and, you know, of course, it comes to a crescendo after a man falls, you know, and they, he pleads for his life. Um, but yeah, there's very strong partisanship and almost certainly an enormous amount of betting. Uh, we know it happened to Circus Maximus and it definitely happened in the Colosseum too. Made to be kind of a little bit covert because the emperors discouraged rampant gambling because it was it seemed to be kind of a socially destabilizing thing.
1: If I let's say if I owned you as a gladiator, glad could I bet take bets myself or was that? Too oh, risky yeah,
0: right. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you are really bold, right, you bet against yourself or something. I no, mean, no. May...
1: If if I owed you to die the owner, do you oh, take right, bets right, on that you would win the battle, mm-hmm. or was that I, too risky?
0: I mean, I don't know. It probably happened. I am sure it happened. Um, you know, again, like, like so much of what gladiators did, you know, it was seen to be low class, and so our Roman authors don't talk about it in any detail, which is very frustrating to people who are interested in it now. You know, that sort of thing definitely happened, um, but we just don't have any record of it. Um, yeah. you know, our, our historians are concerned with you know, high politics and wars and don't really care about the goings on yeah. in the arena.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, let's, so let's talk about, we want to talked a little bit about Bif- Rome before Coliseum. What was the gladiator arena like then? Mm-hmm.
0: So it took Rome a very long time to have a permanent arena, um, surprisingly long. So th- there was an arena before the Colosseum. Actually, there were a couple of arenas. Um, There's a small amphitheater built by a guy called um, Sotilius Taurus, um, kind of off by the Campus Martius. And Nero built a spectacular wooden amphitheater um, in the same area, which had, um, uh, had gilded panels. It had amber from the Baltic um, woven into the arena nets. Uh, he actually scattered malachite, that like green stone, into the sands to make it more, mm. you know, to make it more uh, sparkle. Um, and, and so it, it was a very elaborate construction, but it burned in the Great Fire of 64 and they had to be replaced by the Colosseum. And also there were fight stages in the Roman Forum itself, which was a pretty big open area before it was totally enclosed by the emperors. Do you think um, so we would have
1: the Colosseum if Nero's amphitheater hadn't burned down?
0: Probably not, because it was built inside of his golden house, um, you know, in, which is, of course, this huge villa in the middle of the city. Um, and it was probably to erase the memory of Nero's golden house that Vespasian built the Colosseum where he did. I mean there probably would have been a permanent arena, I think, eventually in Rome, but it might not have been the same scale and definitely would not have been the same place as the Colosseum was eventually.
1: And um, of course we know that the ancient Rome loved their exotic animals and then transferred from Africa and Asia and wherever they could find exotic animals. How often were they used in battles? Was this a common thing or was it just a rare occasions?
0: Well, they were very, very expensive. Um, actually, I talk about this in my book um, and in one of my videos about how they captured animals for the Colosseum. Um, so it meant um, starting. Yeah, I seen that one actually. Oh yeah, yeah, um, and it meant starting starting often a year in advance or more of the games because you know unless you were just selling for local animals like bulls, for example, from Italy or bears or boars, which are kind of the you know the three B's. Those are kind of the the more easy the easiest animals to get. Yeah. If you want to really impress the crowds, if you're an emperor, you want something exotic. And that means going above all to North Africa, where they find um, elephants, um, lions, uh, leopards. Um, and the really exotic animals come from sub-Saharan Africa. So things like uh, hippo, or well, hippos are you know, not, not quite so sub-Saharan, but um, uh, rhinoceroses, giraffes, uh, animals of the Serengeti, uh, rhinos. Uh, and so th- the, these animals um, are hugely impressive when they show up, um, as are tigers, which have come from either India or what's now northern Iran. Um, And so the more exotic the animal, uh, the more the crowd is liable to be impressed. Um, And often, you know, the really exotic animals, like giraffes, um, are so rare, they'll actually be not even killed in the arena. They'll just be displayed. They'll kind of trot them around the arena a few times for people to gawk at them. There's actually kind of a primitive zoo in one corner of the city where emperors keep the animals before they're shown in the games. People can come see them um, and, you know, kind of, you know, ooh and ah. Um, But yeah, so it's a very expensive process, and one that requires a huge amount um, of cooperation from both local hunters um, and detachments of Roman soldiers um, in these areas. They're often um, kind of made to hunt um, for lions or bears, and they're shipped down in these big wooden crates, um, either by ship or on wagons um, into the city in advance of the games.
1: Was it often that uh, exotic animals like tigers or elephants would kill the gladiators, or...? Very mm-hmm. carefully cheer- trying to make sure that the gladiator killed the animal.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, one, there'd be an element of danger to make it exciting for the crowd. Um, and the, the beast hunters, uh, the, the bestiarii, um, had their own school, um, and, and they were very highly trained. So here are guys who could actually, um, you know, who would like, you know, punch a bear in the face, just like without even holding a sword, mm-hmm. um, or somebody who could like strangle a lion with his bare hands, mm-hmm. um, or like people who like almost a- act like, um, like a Toreador, like leap over a bull, you know, when it's coming at them. So it, it probably, most of these guys, you know, they have good weapons, they're highly trained. They probably almost always win. Um, you, not only because you know, the animals are often kind of underfed um, and just very disoriented. Um, actually, animals, like lions, for example, have to be trained often to attack people. You know, they're naturally afraid of people, many of these predators. And so they only find the, mo- they find the most aggressive ones. And they kind of train them to attack for a couple of months before they're brought into the arena. Um, So they're often, you know, very aggressive, but uh, again, often underfed, you know, disoriented, uh, just not really know what's going on. So the gladers have a real advantage over the animal. Um, You know, we hear about, so like the poet Marshall wrote um, a a book of poems about um, one of the great games held under under Domitian, which he mentions, you know, someone, uh, a lion tamer, kind of this guy who tooks with lions, got his hand almost bitten off by a lion. So things obviously happened um but probably a gladiator coming against animals had a pretty good chance of winning almost every engagement
1: was it often that a emperor would give it, as we see in the gladiator again which is a reference in these episodes but was it often that he would give the tombstone? and was, was that a thing at all if we wanted uh, to see a gladiator die
0: oh um like like the, the plea for mercy and all that yeah um yeah, I mean, so, so typically... Um,
1: or is that just another misconception I uh-huh. we have?
0: Well, so the emperor is the guy with the decision. So he's the guy who's giving the games, the most spectacular games anyway in Rome. So it is his decision. Um, and uh, yeah, so usually the crowd will, will want to spare someone who's fought well. You know, someone who's fought bravely and is not mortally wounded. Um, almost always they respect that, you know, the, the sportsmanship, almost the courage shown. Um, and they'll ask for him to be spared. And it's usually a good idea if you're an emperor to heed the crowd, you know, show that you're enjoying the games with them, that you're listening to them. Um, And it's only a few kind of bloodthirsty emperors who are known for killing a lot of gladiators. Just some emperors, even those who we would think be bloodthirsty, like Nero, for example, um, try to discourage all deaths in the arena that they show in their games. Um, Probably because it saves them money. They have to pay full price for someone who dies in the arena. And probably because it allows them to show their clemency you know, if they, if they spare everybody, it shows that they're a merciful person. And that kind of plays well to the crowd. So, yeah, usually it is a matter of you know displaying your clemency um, to the people who are in the arena.
1: So, Rome is, sorry, not Rome, but Colosseum was built in 69 AD. Nice. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, so it's, it does take eight years, eight, nine years to, I believe, to finish it. What is the people's reaction to the Coliseum when they see it being built and afterwards when it's finished?
0: Yeah, it's built astonishingly quickly. You know, we don't know how long exactly, but certainly less than 10 years and maybe as little rightly as six or seven, uh, which is the size of the building is incredible. You know, modern stadiums take almost that long. Hmm. Um, and uh, the people are, as you'd expect, very, very impressed um, there there's even a, uh, a poem. It's not about the costumes, but about Nero's amphitheater, which is even smaller about a country guy going into Rome for the first time and seeing the amphitheater. Mm. It's kind of his jaw dropping basically, and trying yeah. to describe it to his fellow shepherds. And he comes back home. Um, so it was, you know, initially Marshall's poems I mentioned before about the early games in the Colosseum um, also talk about how the Colosseum is more impressive than anything the Greeks ever did. You know, it's just this, uh, this gargantuan monument um, to the emperor's glory.
1: What, do we have an idea of the cost of this thing compared to today and Rome?
0: I mean, it, it's really hard to say. It, it would be something that would cost, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of, you know, dollars or euro, you know, to, to build now. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, involved digging these colossal concrete foundations, um, you know, down 50 feet into the clay. Um, they had to import, um, hundreds of thousands of yards of travertine, um, from what's now Tivoli, you know, about, about, about 20 miles away. Uh, you know, it, the, the labor costs alone, and this of course was done without you know, mechanizations with little, you know, uh, treadmill cranes. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it was probably the most expensive single building ever built in the city of Rome um, with the possible exception of maybe the Imperial Palace um, or I don't know, the Pantheon, I guess, the close rival, but you know, it, it's, it's the biggest, the tallest, and probably the costliest building ever built in the city to that point. Uh, it's a big deal.
1: Yeah. I was in Italy, Rome a few years ago now, and I, I came in the evening and just, Growing up from the Metro station, the Colosseum was the first thing that I saw mm-hmm. in the city. And it was just like wow. It was it really was mind-blowing. I liked it mm-hmm. yeah, well, yeah, to incredible. see it in person. It's, it's, it is a must see in your lifetime. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now I actually and I, I was not to said, I was in Colosseum a few years ago, but and when I was listening to the guided photos, they said that uh, this. So I thought about the seating there, and what was the seating like? Mm-hmm. In uh, how did how did you rank? Like, if you wanted to sit lowest from the high, mm-hmm. what was the and what was the best? Of course, the emperor's seat would be the best, but what would be the right, best, right? What would be for a commoner? What would be the uh, best seat to sit in in Colosseum?
0: So the closer to the arena, the better. Um, you want to be close to the action. You know, there's this big net. So you don't worry about you know, tigers leaping up and grabbing you or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there were uh, five sections in the Colosseum. Um, the, the lowest part the first section for all of the, the most important people in Rome is called the podium. And it consists of kind of, you know, the others above it are real seats, kind of these stone benches. But the podium is kind of this series of low platforms. Where people bring their own chairs, much more comfortable chairs than those stone benches, and set them up um, along these, you know, tiers of, these concrete tiers. Um, this is for the emperor himself, It was a big box um, right in the middle, um, you know, along the, of one of the longer ends, the Colosseum. Um, the Vestal Virgins um, also have a special place. There's a, a section for statues of the gods, who, to show the gods themselves are watching um, these, these spectacles. And for the senators and their families, um, you know, are able to bring in, bring a couple, couple of distinguished guests and their own, you know, their wives and children. So, you know, if you're one of the most important people in Rome, you get to sit in one of those first few rows. Uh, above them um, is the first kind of um, ordinary session of seating. Um, and this is for the equestrian order. Um, so, again, these are a little bit wider than the seats above them. Uh, they're a little bit nicer. But they're still marble. They're still pretty hard to sit on for an entire day. Um, and then as you get higher, um, yeah. it's, it's at the, the it's, called, it's the main section seats get narrower, you know, much, much more narrower, um, much t- more tightly packed. This is kind of the, the, the mass seating. Um, this is divided into many sections for different guilds, for example, um, different associations. And finally, the very worst seats are at the top. That's the bleacher seats. Um, these are underneath, um, right at the very top, the attic of the Coliseum, it's called. Um, and they're made of wood, almost certainly. And they're so narrow, you have to actually stand the entire time watching the games. You can't even sit down. Um, and so, you know, for those people standing up on those wooden benches, um, it's a very different experience than for the senators down there on those big platforms mm-hmm. with their own comfy seats and, you know, sun hats and everything.
1: Yeah. Do we have an idea for, of the pricing for the seats? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, they're all free, actually, uh, because the emperor is giving the games um, and for the em- it's a gift from the emperor to the people. Um, and so it's not the hard part is not, not being able to buy a ticket. The hard part is finding a ticket because there's much more demand than there is supply. How did they get um, out
1: mm-hmm. the tickets when the emperor announced that it would be a game?
0: Mm-hmm. So, the tickets are these tokens, sort of. They're called tesserae. Um, there's a couple of different shapes. Some were made of like pottery, like pottery fragments, or they were like these lead tokens. Um, and they were distributed by the emperor and his administration uh, to different groups in advance of the game. So, he'd hand them out to senators, for example, who would get kind of their own tickets and those for their clients. He'd mm-hmm. hand them out to big organizations, to priesthoods. Um, hand them out to kind of what we would call power brokers. And these guys, these intermediaries, these middlemen, would then hand out those tickets to people who would pay them um, or who they knew and liked. So there was sort of a big, what we would call like a secondary market. Um, so they were free officially, but often you had to pay to get one of those tickets from someone who the emperor had given those tokens to to distribute. Mm. Um, so it's sort of a messy process where it kind of depended on who you knew and what you were willing to pay that person to kind of get your chance to see the games.
1: How often, how- did I say it was difficult to get, but how, for a commoner, how often was it, how easy was it for a commoner to get one ticket? Did so, Did they mm-hmm. go out and give them in the streets, or did they have to come to the Senate Senate themselves?
0: Well, if you were an ordinary Roman, you probably had to see your patron, the kind of the rich or powerful person, you know, who you knew and who you were, to whom you were a client, you know, kind of your... Uh, yeah, the, the, the guy who did favors for you and you did favors for. Mm. Um, and this guy would be your chance um, to get a token um, from someone more powerful than he was. Um, or if you're part of an association, a collegia, if you were a tradesman, for example, and what would be kind of a proto guild, um, sometimes those associations they have access to tickets, um, almost like, like a trade union. Um, so kind of it, it really came down to knowing somebody with access to um, the imperial courts distribution system. Um and it wasn't easy because there's only in you know, an average year probably about a dozen big games a year, uh, you know held you know, the entire time. You know, probably had 12 days of games. Yeah. Um, sometimes an emperor celebrating like a big triumph, there's many more than that, but typically it's very uncommon. Um, and they're really focused a few times in the year. So there's a lot of demand. Um, and probably like I said much more demand than supply.
1: Hmm. Um, I I believe, if I'm not wrong, that certain senators had to it was a sign to this task to be able to host a game and mm-hmm. that they had to pay from their pockets. Is that the case?
0: So th- there's the big imperially sponsored games, you know, the, the huge ones that everyone wants to see. And then certain um, city officials do their own games, which are kind of on a smaller scale. They, they, mm. they can't outshine the emperor, even if they could afford it, which of course they can't. Mm. Um, and later on, the empire became more and more prominent for important senators to hold the big games um, above all, the prefect of the city, kind of the mayor of Rome. Um, he's responsible for putting on the big games in like the, the fifth century, for example. Um, and so we have um, you know, some of these people, we we have letters from them complaining about them trying to get say crocodiles, for example, you know, for their games. Um we have a little more about the nitty-gritty of how the details worked of running these things. But but yes, the senators would be involved. Um, but in the high empire, you know, the, the height of the Roman Empire, um, the big games were run by the emperors only.
1: And I, I believe that I was reading, I was watching somewhere that in, when we found in the early, I don't, I don't remember when, but that we didn't really exactly know what the Colosseum was, was for that. Like, it was used for Gladiator mm-hmm. games. Is this the case?
0: Yeah, I actually have another video. I have a lot of Colosseum videos. I'm realizing. It
1: might have been that one I've uh-huh. seen, yeah.
0: Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, and, and so I have one about the Colosseum in the Middle Ages. Um, and yeah, and believe it or not, they actually forgot that it was used um, for the, gladi- the gladiatorial games because they had no arenas of their own. They didn't have any mass spectacles. Um, and, and so you know, these people, all the seats were gone for the most part, which so is this huge ring of walls and inside this tumbled mass of ruins. And they interpreted this um, either as like a grand temple, like the Pantheon, you know, we had a dome over it. It's like a temple of all the gods or a temple of Jupiter, um, or even as like um, a home for demons, you know, kind of with a typical superstition. Um, where, you know, demons had been summoned, you know, by uh, the magician Virgil, you know, kind of the poet yeah. became a magician in the medieval imagination. Um, and so it really not until the Renaissance, people started reading the text again closely and, and linking them to the city of Rome's monuments was it widely known that the Colosseum had been um, an arena for fighting for these these spectacles. It was soon as just another temple, kind of these grand oh. mysterious pagan monuments that Middle Ages didn't quite understand.
1: What? How did we come to the conclusion that this was a... Amphitheater for gladiator battles.
0: I think it was just sort of that the humanists uh, of the 15th and 16th centuries um, were reading the texts, um, and, and they, you know, knew what an amphitheater was for, um, and publicized that. You know, learned men. You know, there had been a few who always knew what the coliseum was, but that had been kind of overshadowed by the popular myth in the Middle Ages. Um, mm-hmm. When you know the classics became mainstream again in the, in the Renaissance, when it became you know. Uh, almost expected to know uh, good Latin um, among the elite and to read, you know, at least to pretend to read, you know, a few, uh, you know, your Cicero and your Livy at, at that point, uh, there's enough knowledge about the ancient world going around again, that people understand what the costume was for. There's no one, you know, kind of Eureka moment where we see that, Oh, it was an, mm-hmm. era, it was an Abba theater. Uh, it just kind of became more widespread. This, this understanding. Back to
1: James again, how because as we know, they they used to flood the Colosseum in the early days to for naval battles. Was this mm-hmm. a con- again? I'm using this word a lot in this video episode, mm-hmm. but was this a common case, or was it really that they flooded for to have naval battles inside?
0: It was very rare. Um, only within the first few years the Colosseum's existence, um, and, and the reason is that um, when the Colosseum was first built. It is a very simple um, hypogeum kind of underworld. Those passages beneath the Colosseum was just kind of a, a, a one big passageway, we think, that went beneath it, um, that was used to float ships up and other things. And so it was easy to flood the Colosseum then. There was an aqueduct right next to it that supplied the Imperial Palace. And they just turned those waters um, into the arena, that, that one single passageway. And you probably fill the whole thing in a couple hours to a depth of, you know, let's say, you know, one or two meters. Um, and we know they held at least two naumachiae naval battles in the colosseum um, and with miniature ships it's not a very big arena it's about the size of like a, a football field more or less yeah. um, and so it happened a few times but there was they typically did those things naumachiae there was a big artificial lake um a stagnum by the tiber that was much bigger It was a better place for those naval battles so after those first few years when they staged these battles in the colosseum they made a much more elaborate hypogeum you know much more of these passageways beneath the arena and at that point, it was too difficult um, to pump out those passageways. Um, you know, too time-consuming to do every time. You couldn't waterproof them. So they decided just to stop doing Naumachiae in the Colosseum and to do them just in those lakes by the Tiber instead. So they happened in the Colosseum probably only a few times, um, and before about the mid-80s
1: uh, AD. And do you have evidence of an aqueduct leading into the Colosseum for this That is, they did, in, in fact, Flood the battle? Flood the arena? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: the best evidence is actually the drainage. So underneath the arena, there are these huge drainage pipes. Um, and they need a drainage, of course, just because was water flowing down from the seats into those subterranean passageways. But these are far bigger than they would have been for just rainwater. They're these enormous conduits. And so they assume that the size of these big drainage passageways, which go off to a big sewer, leads off to the Tiber then, um, reflects the need to quickly drain a huge amount of water. Um, the aqueduct connections are also attested. Uh, they actually have evidence for water fountains, you know, drinking fountains um, in the corridors of the Colosseum, at least in the first years of the building's operation. Um, so it's definitely part of the infrastructure from the beginning, and there's good evidence, we think, for them being able to do both the flood it and drain it pretty quickly during games.
1: And of course, we have to talk about, I, mean, I will crime not to talk about <laughs> Cromedus in this uh-huh. episode and when, when he became emperor and he was very real he was really fascinated by the gladiator James, and mm-hmm. what made him want to be a gladiator, and how was this looked at by the Senate mm-hmm. and everyone around that he wanted to do gladiator battles himself
0: well right, you know and they they were horrified um you know they they couldn't imagine an emperor, the very pinnacle of Roman society degrading himself to the level of a gladiator, you know the lowest of the low, mm-hmm. the arena fighters um It seems you know we don't know his motivations, of course um but there's always this fascination with the gladiators. You know, the emperor had to appear in the arena um, when. Was um, he the first games.
1: emperor to do this or have there, have there been emperors before him doing the same thing?
0: No, never anyone had appeared in the arena before. You know, Emperors always appeared in the stands. It had, had that seat, you know, that big seat along, you know, the, yeah. the center of the long end. Um, and they, they had to make it a showing in the arena. They had to kind of link themselves with the games they were giving for the people. But the idea that they would actually appear on the arena was, you know, beyond, it never occurred to any emperor before Commodus. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the movie Gladiator actually does a good job of capturing, you know, kind of this part of the appeal of the arena that, you know, everyone chants for Maximus, Maximus, you know, he's Mm -hmm. the the darling of the crowd and any emperor wanted that kind of adulation, but most of them saw a reason to keep a separation between themselves and the arena itself. You know, to be the guy who gave the games, Whose generosity made the games possible, who had pardon the gladiators, but would not himself fight, you know, with those, you know, the, 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 low, the, the criminals and slaves in the arena. But Commodus kind of caught the middleman and himself went into the arena. Um, and he wasn't like an ordinary one of the all gladiator. He usually in the beginning was more of a beast hunter. He would shoot animals from wooden platforms. He's apparently a very, a very skilled archer. Um, so at one point, you know, he, he had like 300 bears brought in from all over the empire and he killed every one of them from a little tower in the middle of the, the arena. Uh, another time he had these arrows devised that had these kind of crescent-shaped heads that could decapitate ostriches. Um, and so he brought in a flock of ostriches you know, from 4,000 miles away um, and then decapitated all of them with his arrows, kind of shooting them down um, while the senators look on aghast. And, uh, and so it, it was, again, it was a way of, perf- what he was doing was, was really what all emperors wanted to do was perform their power and you know, their generosity before the people but to do it in this way, to actually become a leader himself, um, was outrageous. You know, the Roman elite couldn't deal with it. Um, and it's part of why he was assassinated. You know, the, 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 yeah. the idea that an emperor would
1: degrade himself in this way meant that he couldn't be a good manager of the empire. How did the Roman people view that Commodus started? Did, did they love it that he actually wanted to fight himself? Or did, did they did like you said, disgrace him, themselves, the Roman people?
0: You know, we don't know. You know, probably he did get some support if he kept doing it. You know, he must have felt that he had the crowd support. Um, All we have really, of course, is the views of the elite who wrote the histories. So like uh, Cassius Dio, who was a senator um, during Commodus's reign, talks about that ostrich episode. And he actually says that the emperor, you know, decapitated some ostrich and actually held up the the bird's head and kind of motioned the senators like, you're next, you know, if you cross me. Um, And so they, of course, this is just part of them being terrified of this emperor because, you know, he seems like a a threat to everything they do and are. But for the Roman people, um, you know, the the plebs, it may have seemed like kind of an emperor coming down to earth. Um, You know, we don't know. You know, Nero, for example, was popular for the same kind of reason. He never got in the arena, but of course he performed in the theater. Um, And for him, it was this idea, again, of engaging with the people directly, performing for the people and kind of cutting out the senators and all of of the rest of the elite.
1: And Caligula so
0: was... when they ran across the ocean on the boats. Oh yeah, right. Oh yeah, yeah Caligula. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that giant boat bridge he built in mm. yeah, Baiae. Um, and, and so yeah, there was clearly this this appeal that you know an emperor could address the people of Rome directly um, mm. through the arena, and that was the, the heart of its appeal. Um, but uh, it didn't work out well for Commodus because, of course, you know the elite oh. on whom he depended um, thought this was disgraceful and killed him.
1: Mm. Um something I want to ask. Did he make dull blades for the gladiators he was fighting against because he was fearing? Mm-hmm. Is this accurate that he made dull blades made the blades that the gladiators were fighting with the, at tournament in dull blades?
0: Yeah, supposedly he always fought with the blades. He never killed anybody in the arena. Um because again it's part of showing his clemency. He wouldn't want to kill anybody in the arena. Um, no, of I mean, that, the,
1: the gladiators had double blades that he was oh, yeah, fighting.
0: Oh, in, in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, so fighting against him, they did. And it, so some emperors actually encouraged there to be fights with just dull blades. They didn't want the carnage in the arena. But typically, actually, the opposite was true because the crowds wanted there to be that, em- that em- element of risk. You know, mm-hmm. to make the show thrilling, there had to be the, em- the idea that someone could die if everything went wrong. So they actually would ceremonially test the sharpness of the weapons before the fight began. They'd have a guy come out with like a whetstone or something and show how sharp the swords were. Um, so they, they wanted to know the crowd in general that these guys were fighting for their lives. Only the emperors who wanted to emphasize their clemency would have these fights with dulled weapons.
1: What caused the demise of the big gladiator battles? How did it, the, how did it eventually end? Was it like because as we've seen in the Byzantine Empire, there is the hyperdome mm-hmm. and the racist chariots on, but that battles kind of stops after a while. What happens here? Well, it's a blend of things. Um,
0: first, the emperors become Christian, and it becomes harder and harder to justify holding games or paying for games, at least, um, with the Christian ethical system. Um, there's even a story about a monk who leaps down into the arena and protests, you know, the fight that's going on. And the crowd apparently stoned him to death, you know, supposedly. They didn't want the games to stop. Um, but this gesture supposedly made the Emperor Honorius stop the fights. Now, that's probably a later, later legend. Um, it was a combination of that disapproval from Christian elites um, of the growing expense of the games. Um, it became harder and harder to get animals, for example, uh, both because the emperor was weakening um, and because the animals had been hunted almost to extinction throughout North Africa. So they can more and more expensive to, you know, to bring to Rome and display. Um, and also because the emperors are no longer in Rome. And they've moved uh, both to Constantinople and other other capitals that have no tradition um, of this, you know, these arenas. Um, And so they see no reason to kind of start that expense all over again to kind of reimpose it on themselves. And so a combination of the emperors leaving Rome, um, of the games becoming more expensive, and of Christianity Christianity disapproving of the games uh, leads to their being stopped in the early fourth century or early fifth century.
1: And what happens to the Coliseum after a while? Is it sure the barbarians and thieves that crossed the Colosseum to collapse the way it did, or was there mm-hmm. more than this? Was rot decay did it had done anything to do with it that they didn't keep it? Mm-hmm. Keep uh, yeah, play?
0: I mean it, so the, the games so the beast hunts go on a little bit longer than the gladiatorial fights. Um they're actually held till after the empire collapses. Um it's like Theodoric, you know, the Ostrogothic king of yeah. Rome, um, holds them in the early sixth century. Uh, the last games recorded are I think in 523, um, but even at that point, you know Theodoric has no interest in the games himself. He thinks, he actually thinks kind of ironically that they're barbaric, um, and um, he actually begins to authorize the stealing of stone from the Colosseum for use in other building projects. Um, it had been damaged by earthquakes repeatedly over the mm-hmm. previous centuries, and every time it was repaired, a little, a little bit less well. Um, so even by the time the last games were held, half of it was a ruin. That upper deck was already kind of collapsing. Um, and it's kind of colonized after it's abandoned by the the emperors or by the the kings. Uh, People live in the lower arches, but more and more of it collapses um, after successive earthquakes, and the stone, all that travertine I mentioned, is plundered. It's reused um, for churches. It's burned to make lime for mortar, Um, and finally, there's a a really big earthquake um, in the 14th century, which causes the entire south half of the building to collapse. That's why it looks so lopsided today, Um, And that huge amount of stone formed um, by that collapse um, builds half the churches of Renaissance Rome. You know, you find Mm -hmm. in St. Peter's, for example, a couple of bridges over the Tiber. Um, And uh, the pillage goes on for centuries. until it's finally stopped in the 1700s uh, by one of the popes. Um, And so it's really a combination of those earthquakes and that constant pillaging of easy to take, you know, ready, ready shaped travertine Mm -hmm. that makes the Colosseum into the ruin. We see it today.
1: And uh, I think basically it covered basically what it was really like. Do you have any other misconceptions about being a gladiator, or have um, you done through most of it?
0: Just I'd say one more thing, and that's you know, like I mentioned in the beginning, kind of the idea that all the games are a bloodbath. Um, you know, just emphasize that you know probably about one in five gladiators died. Um, you know, in, in a given match. You know, so one in five matches ended in death. Um, of course, aren't great odds, you know, for if you're a gladiator, but it's not, doesn't mean that someone died every single time. So, you know, again, I'd say that the biggest misconception is that it's not just about killing people. Um, it's about the artistry of the fight um, and kind of this risk, the idea that the person who loses can lose his life. You're fighting for the ultimate stakes. Um, and that's what it gives the, the games their allure, you know, in the Roman eyes.
1: Actually, something that I forgot to ask about is how often did a gladiator and what... Was it true that a gladiator could gain freedom by the emperor? And how often did this mm-hmm. happen? It did.
0: Um, it, it did happen. Um, we don't know how often, but we have record it happened several times. Um, and uh, so typically a like, gladiator it gets his freedom um, after, let's say, five or six years of fighting. Let's say he's fought maybe 12, 15 times at that point. If you win that many fights, um, either your contract with you know, your, your school's manager um, comes due, um, or you're given your freedom formally by that school's the director of your school, the Lannister. Or if you fought something really spectacular in the Colosseum, by the emperor himself. So, um, you the emperor, we have a number of emperors, you know, who the, cloud, the crowd will claim kind of spontaneously sometimes to give freedom to someone who's fought really, really well. Um, and then the emperor, if he's smart, will listen to them um, and kind of, again, show how he's, you know, his clemency and his mercy and his concern with the people of Rome. Um, so it definitely happened um, we don't know how often that kind of spectacular clemency happened but it did occur
1: and mm. um, of course i have to ask what did you think of the gladiator as a movie his both his, mm-hmm. both as a movie and a historic accuracy
0: um, i think it's a great movie which has almost no historical basis you know and so again you know sometimes it's a story you just enjoy a movie as a movie Mm. um and so they got a lot of the, this kind of incidental detail right they kind of get the, the, the city of rome itself looks i think very impressive very like rome must have looked um the Colosseum, i think appears that uh, they catch the, the atmosphere of the coliseum very well and they also capture kind of think like the atmosphere of la- gladiatorial schools but of course maximus never existed um and commodus who was mm. real um you know was nothing like you know jock and phoenix's uh, character in the movie mm. um you know, he, uh, he ruled for, you know, almost 13 years, just like a single year. He did indeed hate the Senate um, as the movie, the character in the movie did. Um, but, you know, it didn't, uh, not in the same way. He also wasn't incestuous and all other things. So I think that... Actually, captures... I
1: think we actually talked about this in, in episode 304, where we talked about ancient oh. Rome, that he should have been younger as well.
0: Yes, yeah, he probably should have. Well, he's, yeah, he, should, he was probably about in his early 20s um, when, when he got, became emperor. So he wasn't too far off, but yeah, younger than, younger than the actor was. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that it, it captures the atmosphere of Rome very well. It's a good movie in its own right, but, you know, historically speaking, it's not, you know, Mm. It's just a movie. <laughs> Nothing to do yeah. with what actually happened.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, oh, and before you go, have you do you have anything you wish to promote on the social media where people might find you? Uh
0: yes. Um so I have my YouTube channel, Told in Stone, which um if you enjoy it in history, you hopefully enjoy a lot of great stuff about the city of Rome itself. I would highly Aussie. recommend it because it's oh, thank, really thank you. Um and uh, I actually just wrote a book which is coming out next week. Oh. Um, called uh, Naked Statues, Fat Gladiators, and War Elephants, um, Frequently Asked Questions by the Ancient Greeks and Romans. And it answers it. Um, 36 um, frequently asked questions about the ancient yeah. world, or ranging, some, some about the gladiators in the Colosseum, actually. Um, and I think, again, that if you're a history buff, you'd enjoy that book.
1: I definitely do look for it when it comes oh, thank out. Thank you. And... Uh... My name is Alan. This has been World Latin well. H12. We are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. And uh, yeah, we yeah, are on social media on Instagram, World well. Latin uh, Next week we will talk about first the Third, the rule and of the Byzantine Empire. Now, my name is Alan, and uh, this has been that well. Latin Oh, by the way, before we go, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. And I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice
0: things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus.